so I want you to access for a moment a specific emotion. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you which one. I'm going to describe it to you. And most of you will be able to connect with it. And then once you do connect with it, I just want you to hold on to that. Okay. So you know how turning an arm is like double fines, double penalties, jail time, if you speed, all of that stuff, right? But it's tricky because it's 65, and then it's 55, and then it's 65, and then it's 55, and then it's, now it's 45, right, for part of it. So you know that moment where you're driving 68, and you realize it's 55, but you realize it's 55 because you just passed a cop? And you look down and you realize you're doing 13 over. The two seconds that follow that, when <laughs> you just kind of close your eyes for a second and you say something like, please, Lord, no. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? That's the moment I want you to hold on to. <laughs> I actually had that happen on the spit many years ago as a very young driver. I was driving out the spit early in the morning. I didn't see the cop come and he passed me. I looked down, I realized I was going a little too fast, and I actually did. I, no, I closed my eyes for a second, and then I looked up in my rearview mirror, and when I looked in front of me, I was in the oncoming lane. <laughs> That's not how to play out that scenario. <clears throat> um, over, over many years of ministry, I've had this encounter many times, and that is people who have been believers, maybe their entire life, and yet their life of faith in relationship with God is characterized by that moment, that emotional moment that you just grabbed a hold of, living in fear of what could potentially and rightfully and just, justly happen to them, that terror. We're in the story of uh, Genesis. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end the Genesis story. I'm going to come back to that speeding moment, but I'm going to end the Genesis story and then I want, to, uh, I want to land on uh, what I think is such a critical and fundamental truth about the character and nature of God and our relationship with him that has really shaped my own life and my own heart and seems to be a guiding principle through the life of Joseph. So remember, Joseph was 17 years old. We've reviewed this already. He went down to Egypt. He was, put in, uh, he was bought as a slave, and then he was thrown in prison. When he was 30 years old, 13 years later, he was actually put in charge of Egypt in a very bizarre sort of twist of events. He was now basically ruler of the world. That was at 30 years old. And then at 39 years of age, so seven years of abundance followed by two years of famine, his family showed up in Egypt. And uh, my, my dad talked about that last week. Um, but... What's about to happen, and Genesis actually helps us kind of segue, is there are some things that happen at the end of Genesis that are critical to our understanding of how we end up in Exodus chapter 1, how we end up in that part of the story. So this is what happened. Seven years of abundance. They took a grain tax. Seven years of famine. After the first couple of years of famine, everyone ran out of money. They didn't have any money to buy food. And so when everyone ran out of money, and by everyone I mean everyone, they started trading their livestock uh, to Pharaoh. So they would trade their animals for food. 
And then everyone ran out of livestock. And so Egypt owned all of the livestock. And so then people started trading their family farms, their property, their homes. And everyone handed over ownership of their property to Pharaoh in exchange for food in order to survive. And pretty soon, Pharaoh owned all of the land, all of the property. There was no private property left in Egypt. In fact, it tells us, except for the priests, the only people who retained private property through this famine were the priests that served in Pharaoh's uh, household. When everyone ran out of property and still needed food, they actually indentured themselves. They gave themselves in service of Pharaoh in exchange for food. So now Pharaoh has all of the money, he has all of the livestock, he has all of the land and property, and now he owns rights to their service. After you give away your money, your livestock, your property, and your freedom, there's not much left to give, right? And yet there was still more famine. And so what happened was Pharaoh, now that he owned everything and everyone, he put in place a permanent grain tax and said, from now on and forever, uh, everything that is produced in my land, on my land, which now belonged to Pharaoh, by my people, his servants, 20% of it will belong to me. I know it's hard to imagine a government taking 20%, but that was the injustice of their time. But Joseph had invited his family down to Egypt and gave them special care and protection. So uh, not only did they survive the famine because of their relationship with Joseph, but it says that during the time of the famine, uh, Joseph's family, Jacob's family, actually grew and thrived during the time of the famine in this special place called Goshen, uh, a part of Egypt where he had called them to come and to live. So the famine ended, they stayed there in Egypt, Joseph was ruler, and when Joseph was 56 years old, so 40 years after the initial injustice, um, Jacob, his father, uh, knew he was dying, so he called his sons to them, he blessed them, um, and he made, uh, he made them make a promise to him, he said, when I die, I want you to take me back to Canaan. And bury me at home. And so the brothers agreed, and so Jacob passed away, and it says that Joseph and his household of Egyptians and all of Jacob's family, his brothers, uh, they all took a trek back to Canaan, and they buried Jacob there. And the, the story ends this way, and this is actually kind of where I want to land and unpack what's going on here. And after he had buried his father, this is in Genesis 50, uh, verse 14. After Joseph had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and everyone who had gone up with them to bury Jacob. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they turned to each other and they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back in full? for all of the wrong which we did to him. 40 years later, 
playing in the back of their mind is the same script, right? So they sent a message to Joseph. They didn't go to Joseph. They sent a message to Joseph. And they said to him, Dad told us before he died what we were to say to you. And this is what your dad told us to say to you after he died. Please forgive, I beg you, the offense of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the offense of the servants of the God of your father. <laughs> so before approaching their brother, and I always, there's so much drama in this story. You remember the brothers, they go back and they tell their dad, hey, guess what? Joseph's alive. Not only that, but he's king of the world. And dad says, Joseph's alive. How did that happen? And they say, oh, right. Um, so there's part of the story that we haven't told you yet. Please forgive your brothers, I beg you, for the sin that they did you wrong. And when Joseph heard the message, he wept. And his brothers also came, this is in verse 15 of chapter 50, his brothers also came and they fell down before him and they said, behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to keep many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And so he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. So one final lesson from the life of Joseph and his family. I want to introduce you, and I've actually, I've actually taught on this before at Church on the Rock. It's so dear to me, I couldn't skip it. I want to introduce you to the two gods of this story. Not because there are two different gods at work, but because there are two dramatically different perceptions of that God. The God of Joseph and the God of Joseph's brothers. And if I was to give them both a name, I would say that the God of Joseph is the God of providence, and the God of Joseph's brothers is the God of punishment. The God of providence is the one that my dad talked about last week who is able to sovereignly rule over our lives and work all things towards his good purposes. The God of punishment is the God who's waiting for you to mess up. When you do mess up, he doesn't forget. And in fact, you'll find out that he doesn't forget because eventually the hammer will drop. And for those who serve the God of punishment, they live in that moment, that speeding moment where I realize that I would be justified in getting a consequence from this officer, and yet I'm hoping and praying and closing my eyes and wishing away the consequences that I know I deserve. I actually got a ticket for doing 57 in Sterling. <laughs> 
Sterling is an injustice, you know? <laughs> All that room, and you have to slow down to 45. It's terrible. So what I want to do in the, in the time that we have is I want to draw some, some uh, descriptions of these two gods because the God of punishment, the God of Joseph's brothers, uh, creates in the person who serves the God of punishment a particular set of expectations and the person who serves the God of providence a very different set of expectations. The first one is this. When I serve the God of punishment, I believe that my badness qualifies me for God's badness. When I serve the God of providence, it is God's goodness, God's goodness, that qualifies me for God's goodness. That all of the good that I experience in my life is a reflection of His goodness, not my own. It's his righteousness, it's his love, it's his goodness that precedes my experience of his goodness. I'm serving the God of punishment. I believe that everything that I've done wrong, God will eventually get me back for. Genesis 42, 21, and they said to each other, truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. God did not forget. God was just waiting for the opportune time to get me. When I was a teenager living overseas, uh, we hunted rats a lot. Um, for no reason other than they're evil. And so uh, we would take, we were very crude in our methods, we would take a piece of plywood and prop it up with a stick and a string, place a brick on top of that piece of plywood and put some bait underneath and then we would climb up in a tree and just wait. That actually is the experience of many who walk with God. I'm just trying not to succumb to my natural tendencies, my natural appetites, try to avoid the bait, but I know it's there and I know it's tempting, and actually I think now maybe I'm gonna go for it and God's gonna get me. And if he doesn't get me now, he's gonna get me later. God of punishment is a punitive God who is interested in making me feel the pain of my decisions. The second thing is the God of punishment, when I serve the God of punishment, broken people and painful circumstances form my view of God. So as I encounter broken people, as I encounter painful circumstances, those things actually tell me who God is. When I serve the God of providence, it's my view of God that forms my view of broken people and painful circumstances. So because of my understanding of God and his goodness and the way that he relates to us out of love, because of my firm, solid, unwavering uh, conviction of the character and nature of God, from that place, I interpret and understand my circumstances, 
my painful circumstances. I understand broken people and my role in their lives. When I serve the God of punishment, the things that are happening in my life that are difficult are actually confirming for me a particular and, and broken view of God. So there's a part of the story we didn't cover, but when Jacob or when Joseph first sends his brothers home without Simeon, remember he stays in jail, he sends his brothers home, he returns the money that they brought, he puts it in their bags. The brothers along their journey home open up their bags in chapter 42, verse 28. My money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack, and their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? Which is a great question. What is it that God has done to us? He turned our evil deed on its head for our salvation, and when we came to purchase that salvation, he refused the payment, sent our money back with us, and said, I'll save you at no cost to you. That's what God did. <laughs> and at the realization, they're trembling. This man was very harsh to us. Our circumstances are very precarious. Surely God is trying to get us. Joseph saw it very differently. Again, we've covered this, but Genesis 45, 7, so God sent me ahead of you to ensure for you a remnant on the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. The God of providence turned your evil on its head for your salvation. Number three, when I serve the God of punishment, the question I ask when I run into difficulty, when I run into suffering, is what is God trying to prove to me? He's trying to teach me a lesson. He's trying to prove that I can't get away with it. When I serve the God of providence, when I suffer, I ask the question, what is God wanting to accomplish through me? What is my role in this? Every time that the brothers hit a bump in the road, their gut reaction, their initial response is to duck and cover, right? God's going to make his point now, and it's going to be brutal. And Joseph runs into suffering, not of his own doing, and realizes that God has called him for a purpose in the midst of this suffering to accomplish this great deliverance. You know, God in the way that he deals with us is not the God to remove consequences. In other words, you know, a child puts their hand on the stove, they're gonna get burned, right? But a loving parent will take that as an opportunity to help the kid understand that that's, that's something that I want you to avoid, so let me help you avoid that. Don't put your hand on the stove. When you serve the God of punishment, and you put your hand on the stove, and immediately you don't get burned, you live in a life of fear, waiting for God to come to burn you to prove his point, right? That's the God of punishment. That he's going to track you down and make sure that you suffer. 
What is God trying to prove? Genesis 42, 21, Reuben answered them and it said, Did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy and you would not listen? Now comes the reckoning for his blood. A reckoning is God showing you that he didn't forget. His memory is long. His forgiveness is short. And a reckoning is a payment that is past due. You're going to get it now. Which leads us to the fourth difference. When I serve the God of punishment, I'm terrified by my imaginations. And I actually think that this is more powerfully true with religious people than it is with non-religious people. It's more powerfully too with religious people who have a, have a misunderstanding of the character and nature of God because their own awareness of their own brokenness actually, remember, again, shapes their view of God and they know that God would be absolutely just in whatever punishment he would deal out. And so they live terrified by their imaginations. Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, turned to each other and said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us? 40 years later, living under the fear of their own imagination of where Joseph is really at. But it, wasn't a, it didn't have anything actually to do with their, their view of Joseph. This is coming from their deeply rooted belief in who God is, the kind of God that he is. When you serve the God of providence, you are edified by, by expectation. Your expectations of God's capacity to redeem all of things for his good purposes strengthens your inner person, builds you up, even as you face suffering, even as you face injustice or painful circumstances. Joseph's final words to his brother, to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result and to preserve many people alive. His expectations shaped his inner person. which actually led me to a question as I was studying this week. Of all of the hardship that the brothers caused to Joseph, the many years of pain and difficulty, and all of the blessing that through Joseph's suffering he made available to his brothers, gave them a home, provided for them, gave them protection. Their brother is king of Egypt. Who lived the more miserable life? We only ever hear about the brothers in their misery as a result of their view of God. When I serve the God of punishment, I live a miserable existence. When I serve the God of providence, I live a meaningful existence. And it's important to note that just like Jesus, 
Joseph did not feel compelled to deny the pain of his suffering or to justify the evil that brought it about. But he understood his suffering and he interpreted his suffering based on his view of God. In Genesis 41, verse 51, Joseph called the name of his firstborn son. This is actually before he saw his brothers. He called the name of his firstborn son Manasseh, which means, for God has made me forget all of my toil in my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. He did not deny the pain of it or the suffering of it. He says, but God in his providence has helped me resolve the past and all of the difficulty and the, and, the, and the torture that came from that has helped me resolve the past and move towards a meaningful future. And because of this conviction, because of his, just his supernatural confidence, in the capacity of God, he actually moves into uh, a caring, shepherding, pastoral role. His brothers come to him terrified of what he's going to do to them. In fact, they appeal to their dead dad. Dad said, please be nice to us. And Joseph responds, he says, do not be, do not be afraid. I will provide for you, you and your children. And then it says, so he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. Joseph, the victim of their brutality, the role of pastor to his own family because of the God that he served. Many years later, the psalmist writes in Psalm 105, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make his deeds known among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him. Tell of all his wonders. Boast in his holy name. May the heart of those who seek the Lord be joyful. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonders, which he has done, his marvels and the judgments spoken by his mouth. Wait, remember what wonders? What are you talking about? Psalms 105. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, they forced his feet into shackles. He was put in irons until the time that his word came to pass, and the word of the Lord refined him. And the king sent and released him, the ruler of the peoples, and set him free, and he made him lord of his house and ruler over all of his possessions. Hundreds of years later, the writer of Psalms saying, can you believe the God that we serve and how, how phenomenally capable he is to turn everything towards his good purposes? And if you don't believe me, remember Joseph and what God did through him. God, would you give us this confidence? Would you teach us the perfect love that casts out fear? Because fear involves punishment. Because we know that all ministry to others actually begins from this place of supreme confidence in you. Teach us to trust. Give us the grace to open our hearts to you. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.